Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 6, Episode 2, The Age of Hunger. So, what was life like as a commoner in the provinces? You might be expecting an answer like, generally not as comfortable as the lives of the nobles, but that's not actually very helpful, and in some cases, not at all true. The lifestyle available to commoners would have largely depended upon where they lived and how they made their living. That being said, most of them lived very difficult lives filled with hard work, little sustenance, and oppressive overlords. I relied heavily on information found in the book Japan to 1600, A Social and Economic History by William Wayne Ferris. If you are interested in learning more about Japan's history, I highly recommend picking up a copy for yourself. With that said, we will begin in Kyushu. Life on the western island had never been particularly easy, given its massive amount of rocky terrain that limited the available farmland. You may recall from Season 2 that many of Kyushu's settlements in ancient times had to develop markets where they could trade for the food they needed, as they were largely unable to rely on farming alone to keep themselves fed. By the later Heian period, the Dezaifu Fortress had not only fallen into disrepair, but large parts of it had been burned down by Fujiwara Sumitomo. Likewise, the thriving nearby town saw a gradual population decrease that made finding adequate labor very difficult. The fortress was rebuilt, but on a much smaller scale, as the leaders in Heian-kyo began to believe that a foreign invasion was unlikely. In the same way, those who were appointed as a sort of national guard who served at Dazaifu no longer held to the discipline of soldiers and, according to George Sansom, spent their days fishing and sleeping. While Dazaifu's military capabilities may have fallen into disrepair, its trading capabilities were still a vital part of the Japanese economy. All of those fine kimonos worn by the nobility were made from bolts of silk imported from China, and many other mainland goods made their way to Japan through Kyushu's Hakata Bay. However, it is probably not quite right to picture a bustling trade city filled with stevedores, longshoremen, and constant merchant traffic. At least, not yet. There would be flurries of activity when the sometimes massive ships from China would arrive, but it would not be a near-constant coming and going until nearly the end of the Heian period. The common people of the Western Island still needed to make their own way, mostly with farming, fishing, and hunting. By the end of the Heian period, much of Kyushu's arable land was under the control of private estates, or shōen. By the end of the Heian, Kyushu's shōens accounted for fully one-quarter of all the shōens in the entire nation. The privatization of large tracts of land is a key feature in the rise of the samurai caste, and the samurai clans that later seized power on Kyushu would grow very powerful indeed. Moving to Shikoku, life on that island had become significantly worse in the wake of Fujiwara Sumitomo's many raids on its provinces. Like Kyushu, its rocky landscape and poor sandy soil made large-scale farming there a practical impossibility. 
While its mountains and forests were not ideal for productive land, they held an allure for the religiously inclined. The practice of building temples and monasteries on remote mountaintops continued throughout the later Heian period, and Shikoku provided the ideal location for constructing a great number of holy places. It is during the Heian period that the custom of pilgrimage became popular in Japan, and Shikoku would eventually become one of the primary places where people, both noble and common, could journey to visit holy places which promised healing for whatever inflicted them, both spiritual and physical. However, the labor shortage caused by the population decline of the Heian period meant that large-scale construction projects like Buddhist temples would take years, sometimes decades, to finish. In western Honshu, or Chugoku, many of the formerly populous areas had been largely abandoned. Harvests were so sparse and so poor that tax forgiveness became frequent, just out of necessity alone. Chugoku had never been a particularly prosperous place, but by the later Heian, it was a vast stretch of winding roads that led to ghost towns and tiny communities. Kansai, of course, is where the magic of governance took place, and thus many of the commoners there had the benefit of being near the capital where they could, and often did, bring petitions and complaints. We discussed last season some of the court's solutions to complaints, which generally amounted to a slap on the wrist or simple reassignment in the cases of corrupt officials. But removing the offending bureaucrat from those he had offended with heavy taxation or abusive overwork was usually enough to quell the anger of the commoners and set everything back the way the government felt it ought to be. Violence like the Hirono River incident, which we explored last season in episode 11, The First Child Emperor, was still commonplace, and even the capital and its surrounding provinces were not exempt. We will discuss violence and warriors in the next episode, but for now it is enough to note that the common people were often on the receiving end of coercive violence. The mountains of Chubu, the region just to the east of Kansai, continued to be used as sites for temples and shrines, and the plains were starting to be utilized as pasture land for horse breeders. The province of Shinano in particular was well suited to this purpose, and the landowners there were usually ranchers, so to speak, rather than farmers. This brings us to Kanto. The troublesome eastern region continued to be home to farmers and warriors and farmer warriors, though by the later Heian period there is evidence that the two groups were already growing quite distinct, and men who served in both capacities were becoming rare. Records tell of abandoned fields and reduced incomes which led to a real problem for the tax-farming governors who were fortunate enough to get postings in the usually wealthy region. Many people across the nation fled for the coasts or mountains, taking up fishing, hunting, and gathering as a means of subsistence during these trying times. Way back in Season 1, Episode 4, we discussed how archaeology in Korea indicated a similar shift in ancient times from farming to coastal dwelling, possibly due to climate change. As the settlements were abandoned and farming communities came undone in Kanto, the nobility serving as governors and provincial officials needed to find a way to restore the farming status quo. 
provincial officials and district managers devised a system of rituals meant to gain blessings from the gods of the land. This included seasonal dances and festivals celebrated in the fields to honor the gods and earn their patronage. In addition to this ritualized celebration, peasants were organized into work crews and assigned various fields to hack at with hoe and shovel in an attempt to break up hard ground and prepare the soil for rice cultivation. The Tohoku region in the later Heian period continued its gradual progress of being integrated into Yamato culture, though its Amishi roots still held pretty strong. There was always a demand for warriors there to help the court-appointed governors keep the peace, but ambitious warriors took note of the many easily fortified positions that existed throughout the cold, rocky north. The next large-scale conflicts in the region would not be led chiefly by those of Amishi heritage, but by cunning Yamato warriors who knew the region better than any court-appointed shogun and could use the harsh landscape to their advantage. As the population continued its steady but certain decline in the later Heian period, it became all the more critical to secure laborers nationwide. In the early Heian, officials extended rice loans to farmers which could be repaid in the case of bumper harvests and were forgiven during years of famine and drought. This served as a kind of backdoor public welfare through the early 900s. However, by the latter part of that century, officials became desperate enough to offer free food in exchange for service on the government-owned farms. Another innovation during this time of human labor shortage was the utilization of oxen. The care and keeping of oxen requires a lot of space and food, which put ownership of these beasts of burden well out of the reach of common farmers. Those who managed showens, as well as those who had grown wealthy, could afford the upkeep and began using them to help plow their fields more frequently as a stopgap when human labor was in short supply. While many hardships afflicted the peasants during this time, labor-wise, they had a lot of options. If they had spent the year tending a government field that was half-eaten by locusts, they would probably be successful in demanding a reduction in rent from the provincial officials. And if their particular provincial official refused to negotiate, they could just abandon their plot. The wilderness was vast and the provincial authorities had much bigger concerns than tracking down absconding peasants. None of this is to say that peasant life was easy during the late Heian period. Their newfound ability to negotiate their labor did nothing to protect them from the epidemics that periodically ravaged the population. You may recall from season four that a devastating smallpox epidemic swept through the nation in the late 730s, which is estimated to have killed somewhere between a quarter and a third of the entire population. Nothing in Japan's future would prove quite that lethal, but epidemics were still relatively frequent, and none of them passed through without a significant body count. The general life expectancy on Japan plummeted dramatically by the later Heian period, with some historians estimating that, due to the stark infant and maternal mortality, as well as the frequent bouts of epidemics, the average life expectancy may have been under 20 years old. Smallpox ravaged the nation on average every 30 years or so, and the longer amount of time that stretched between epidemics actually made the illness more devastating, as it only allowed for more people to be born who did not have 
any acquired immunity to the illness. Measles appears to have come to Japan as well during this time, an illness which is particularly lethal when contracted by populations that have vitamin A deficiency, which you may remember was common in Heian period Japan. Because diseases were so poorly understood in those days, these viruses were not just a poor people's problem. The capital, practically the only major urban center in the country at this point, was especially ravaged by measles and smallpox, and the wealthy were by no means spared from the onslaught of the epidemic. In the face of these repeated mass tragedies, the court proposed holding a mass ritual in the capital to assuage whatever spirits were causing this death and despair. Thus, the Gion Festival was born, featuring a spectacular ritual parade that traipsed through the streets of Heian-kyo, begging the fell spirits, the Gion, to spare the nation from their wrath. The Gion Festival is still celebrated in modern-day Kyoto throughout the month of July, and features large, impressive floats that are pulled along through the streets to the melodies of traditional music. It is no longer believed to be an effective ward against diseases, but is a continuation of Japanese traditions from the late 900s. While you might generally picture farmers when I discuss the commoners, it's important to remember that Heian period Japan had a thriving class of artisans, ranging from craftsmen who made pottery and ceramics to smiths who forged armor and weapons. Their work would also undergo many changes throughout the later Heian period. One of the most important industries in Japan was salt production. Because Japan did not have large underground salt deposits to mine, their only option was to harvest it from the sea. Prior to the later Heian period, this was done by gathering kelp and seawater and boiling them together in pots to reduce the water and create salt crystals. This was a hot, grueling process which was labor-intensive, and as the population declined, fewer and fewer workers could be found to work the salt pots. A new technique for capturing ocean salt was created during the later Heian that required fewer workers and almost no regular labor salt fields. By carving a space to trap waves from the outgoing tide and then letting the water evaporate in the sunshine, workers were able to keep up with the demand for salt both in the capital and across the nation without requiring an outsized portion of local manpower. Sword makers in the Heian had their work cut out for them. Sorry about that. The demand for swords meant that several provinces had their own specialty swordsmithing schools. Yamato, Yamashiro, Bizen, and Hoki provinces all developed their own localized sword production facilities, which over time developed their own custom techniques of swordsmithing. While Japan had previously imported iron ingots from Korea and China during the Asuka period and before, New production methods were developed during the Nara period to smelt iron from native iron sands. This was a hot, grueling process that involved continuously operating massive bellows for days on end, likely with workers taking shifts. The resulting pig iron was then refined further by swordsmiths who employed various techniques to create various alloys and achieve different levels of purity and firmness in the resulting steel. 
I was unable to find out whether the famous folded steel technique came about during the Heian period, but my suspicion is that it was probably not folded as many times or with the same level of craft expertise as it would be in later eras. We will discuss this particular technique in more detail next season when the Blades of the Samurai will get a much-needed upgrade. While the aristocracy enjoyed matrilocal polygamy, marriage among the common people was generally monogamous, though it was also matrilocal. Because of the demand for farm workers, peasant farmers would usually move in with their wife's family and help with their crops throughout the year. Average family size is believed to have grown during this period, and the typical group would have about 8 to 10 members, ranging from children to the elderly. Because of lingering superstitions about blood, women who were menstruating or giving birth were required to stay in a small separate hut on their homestead until the bleeding subsided or until the birthing process was complete. Even with the assistance of midwives, there can be little doubt that such unsanitary conditions increase the likelihood of complications in childbirth, a process which was already a very risky endeavor for both mother and child. Now that we've covered both the aristocrats and their humblest subjects, you may be wondering how the two groups related to one another. It will probably come as no surprise that the Heian nobility did not think highly of the peasantry. The commoners wore practical clothing for their professions, were generally pretty unhygienic, and almost none of them were able to read or write. The lady Sei Shonagon, in her tell-all diary called The Pillow Book, goes so far as to describe peasants as basket worms. Regarding what the commoners thought of the nobles, I have no idea. I'm willing to be wrong about this, but as far as I know, there are no extant sources of peasant opinions from this time, largely because, as I just mentioned, they were largely illiterate. It's tempting to imagine some resentment from the people who toil and work the land for those who lived soft lives of poetry parties, music rehearsals, and romantic adventures. It's just as easy to imagine that the nobles with their colorful kimonos, polite mannerisms, and elegant countenances may have seemed almost like mystical, otherworldly beings to the common subjects. The truth is likely some mix of the two, keeping in mind that although we refer to them as the peasants or the commoners, they were not a uniform group and certainly formed their own opinions. So much greater, then, is the tragedy that they had no means of passing their thoughts along to us. While the nobles enjoyed the fruits of culture in the capital and the peasants endured the extremely strenuous labor required to enable the court's lavish lifestyle, there were two more important groups whose development during the later Heian period should be discussed. Next time we will explore the later Heian period through the eyes of the clergy and the samurai. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. 
check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today. <laughs> 